If you were here last time, you will remember where we got up to and I suggested that Jacob has become a changed man. He's wrestled with God, or rather God has wrestled with him. God has come to him and God has taken him on. God has said to him in effect, okay, Jacob, let's settle this. Who is running things, you or me? And it starts off with Jacob contending with God and competing with God and seeking to overcome God and it ends with Jacob clinging on to God, blessing Uh, pleading with him that he would bless him and he goes away from that a changed man you remember we said he goes away um, changed in his name God's given him a new name Israel Uh, Isaac the uh, Jacob the deceiver has now been replaced by Israel referring to that wrestling with God he goes away a changed man physically he's now got this limp God has touched him and he's He's recognised his own lack of strength, his own dependence upon God and, and most especially he's gone away changed in his mind and heart having had this experience of God. And now finally he comes to meet his brother. And my friend, we really do need to try to put ourselves into scripture to understand this, don't we? It's so easy for us, 21st century, isn't it, to sit here and read any passage of scripture from the comfort of, of our seat uh, with the, having read it I don't know how many times before probably first times in Sunday school as little children being told the stories can, can we put ourselves there to imagine what it must have been like for Jacob 20 years ago he deceived and cheated and stole the blessing from his brother 20 years ago his mother it was reported to his mother that his brother was plotting to kill him and he fled for his life. You remember that dramatic exit and fl- uh, fleeing to his uncle there, uh, 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 taking nothing with him, leaving everything behind. Twenty years has passed. What's happened in that time? He's not heard news from home. Has Esau forgiven him? Can he be reconciled to Esau? Will the gifts that he sent placate him in some way? What's going to happen? And the news has come to him that Esau's coming out against him with 400 men. It might not seem a lot by our standards, but even in recent history and certainly if you go back to opening Bible history an army of 400 is a massive army and they're coming out as far as he knows against him and this is the moment when they're going to meet he looks up and there is his brother coming towards him with his massive army and so he puts into practice his final preparations for it and we see quite clearly his plan here in the opening verses there he divides his children out he puts the children with their parent, their mother and he arranges them and I don't think we can read it any other way than he arranges them so that his, his greatest possession the one he loves most dearly is at the back he first puts the maidservants and their children in the front and then Leah and her children and then Rachel and her children right there at the back and it's uh, uh, Joseph right there at the back and it seems that his reasoning is something like well if he's going to attack then okay I might lose possibly the maidservants and my children by them but hopefully Leah and Rachel and the children will survive but even if he gets carries on and attacks the second wave if you like of innocent people and I lose Leah and her children at least Rachel and Joseph will survive and uh, well that's his plan but there's one big difference come over him now isn't there do you remember at Jacob there at the river he sent them across and then he went back the other side to the safe side himself and he spent the night there in safety he put his women and his children ahead of him this time having arranged them in the order 
that are most precious to him, he then goes and stands out in the front of all of them. And he walks head on towards his brother. And as he approaches his brother, as a sign of respect before him, he bows seven times as he comes towards him. And he makes a most wonderful discovery. Esau is a totally changed man. Not only has God been at work in Haran where he spent the last 20 years, and not only has God been at work in his life, but God's also been at work back home in Esau. Just look at verse 4. Isn't it an amazing verse? But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. There's Jacob getting all the protocol right, getting all the approach right, doing everything to show in the right way that he wants to be reconciled to his brother. His brother just throws it all away and just runs to meet Jacob, throws his arms around him. It doesn't matter that it's in front of the servants, it's in front of the children, it's in front of complete strangers. He is just overwhelmed with joy at seeing his brother again. And he just shows it in the most demonstrative way he possibly can. And when Jacob wants to give him gifts, whether it's to pacify him as his first intent, or whether it's in verse 8 to find favour in his eyes, or whether it's as in verse 11 simply as presents, Esau is most reluctant to take them. Jacob's stolen everything that humanly speaking was his back 20 years before. And, and it so hurt him and it so filled him with bitterness at the time and hatred towards his brother. And all of that's gone. But now when his brother tries to push things on him, he's turning around and saying, no, I don't need them. I, I, I'm fine, you keep them. And Jacob really does have to push, doesn't he? To get Esau to take anything. His heart has been transformed. Can we stop right there for a few minutes and just explore this? Firstly, can we see how precious family relationships are? You know, in our day and age, they're not ranked very highly I guess in the scheme of things are they uh, we're so used to hearing of families that are split apart we're so used to hearing of all sorts of confused relationships it, it, it almost seems the natural that there is problems in the home family relationships are a wonderful wonderful thing aren't they when they're right that they're a God given gift God has put us into families hasn't he he hasn't designed things that we should live on our own he hasn't designed things so that we should go through life only having friendship relationships we're supposed to have family relationships as well aren't we and they should be the closest of all my friend if you've got good family relationships can I encourage you to thank the Lord for them every day and to work at keeping them good because these things don't just stay good of their own so often do they we, we do have to work at them and they're worth working for aren't they tragically so often the good things we have we only really appreciate when we lose them don't we isn't that true of everything our health our strength it's only when they start to go or they disappear that we really appreciate how much we enjoyed them when we had them can I encourage you to keep these things before the Lord to pray about them daily and to to just work at making them good. Can I say secondly, I believe it's a, a very right and good thing that these brothers moved away from home and away from their parents' immediate influence. All the time they were at home as grown men, 
with their own wives and families things went wrong didn't they they had problems and whatever the rights and wrongs of the way they came to leave home I believe it's actually a good thing that they did leave home that's God's intent and God's purpose isn't it that as we grow up and as we go into relationships and we get married we make a break as well as a, a union we're joined to our wife, we're joined in this new relationship, but there has to be a break in the old ones, doesn't there? Isn't that what we read back in Genesis 2:24? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There's a, a divinely appointed breaking and a joining. And it seems to me the problem very often in our society today is that when that joining takes place, the breakings don't take place in the way that they should and so often family still get involved and still interfere and still, still try to take the part that they were taking before. And that's damaging, isn't it? These men needed to learn to grow up and take on their own responsibilities and their own commitments and make their own right decisions and, and run their own families well. And maybe it was a good thing that that split came out, be it through an evil means, that they were actually distanced from each other and separated a bit and they were able to actually develop their own lives. Their own personalities could come to the front. They had to work for their own living. They had to do their own thing and and look after their own families. And that responsibility and, and that experience maybe had a part in changing them and growing them. There's a third thing we should see here and that's very simply and most wondrously that the very worst of family problems can be resolved under God's hand. Isn't that amazing? The last time these two saw each other they were literally, one was at the point of killing the other. The next time they meet and they haven't been sending emails to each other in between they haven't been getting on the phone to chat to each other each week the next communication they have with each other the one who was going to kill the other is now running up and embracing him and kissing him. Showing his love for him in the most open way he possibly can. Now what has brought about this change? Well I think we can look to a lot of factors that have had an effect, can't we? We've already suggested that the separation between them maybe has had an effect. Maybe because they've been separated they've appreciated what they had in each other and what they've lost now being apart time has had an effect they say time is a healer and sometimes it is isn't it and it would seem here that time has at least in Esau has, his, his anger has abated his mother got that right he, he's not got that same fire for revenge and that fire of hatred in him anymore I guess new family has had an effect they've, they've, they've built their own families now they, they've got a, their own lives to live And that puts other things into perspective, doesn't it? They've had personal success. They're no longer feeling that there's got to be this competition between them all the time. They've both in their own way been successful. They've both in their own way advanced. They've both proved themselves as men. But most importantly, God has had an effect, hasn't he? All of those things don't change the heart, not really, but God does. And God has been at work. He's been at work in Esau, he's been at work in Jacob. And they are different people now. They're not the same two men that they were 20 years ago. God has changed them. 
Look at uh, the recognition that Jacob gives to that. Verse 5 he says, They are the children God has graciously given your servants. Go down to verse 11. God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. God has blessed them. He's blessed them materially. But he's also blessed them in the way they see things and understand things and think about things. He's transformed their very hearts. The things that God had promised right back to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob, those promises that he made have come true. They're coming to pass in different areas and as they're coming to pass, these men are being changed by it. They're finding their place within God's promises. They're recognising God's hand. They're seeing things in a totally different way. My friend, can I really encourage you through these verses not to give up on those you've been estranged from. If you have family or friends you haven't spoken to maybe for years and maybe your last speaking was with harsh words. If there are those in your mind that maybe you've closed the door and I speak to myself because you know I've got family who you know things aren't as I want them to be with them and maybe in our minds we sort of come to the point of just sort of accepting well that's the way it's going to be can I encourage you not to close your minds to what God can do keep praying for them keep pleading with God for them keep believing that God can work in their hearts and minds even as I trust and praise working in yours And God can transform anyone and God can turn them around and it's perfectly within God's power that the next time you meet them it will be totally different to the last time you met them. God is that powerful. He can replace bitterness with joy. He can replace hurt with healing. He can replace hatred with love. He can do what we can't do and he does it can I encourage you to pray for them and believe that God can answer your prayers and if you're the one who's estranged and you know the faults on your side pray that God will heal you pray that God will give you that love pray that God will just take away the hurt and the bitterness and the hatred or whatever it might be that's there that you'll be right before him as well Esau, a changed man. Jacob, a not yet dead man. What do I mean by that? I mean by Jacob, the man he was before God renamed him. God's given him a new name, hasn't he? Wouldn't it be wonderful that from the point that God calls him Jacob, he is a totally transformed, God calls him Israel, he's a totally transformed man. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That the old Jacob never appears again. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a total victory over sin in his life, if there was a complete transformation of thought and behaviour, if the old man was truly once and for all destroyed and if his life and ours from the point of conversion never showed anything but the beautiful radiance of Christ. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Well, every life must change at the point of conversion. We were saying that this morning, weren't we? There has to be a change. If God has entered a person's life, if his spirit has come to indwell them, if he's done that initial sanctification work within us, there is a change. And if that isn't there, then we've got to question how real our profession of faith is. And it should be a progressive sanctification from there on. We should become more and more Christ-like. But sometimes the old man does surface again, doesn't he? 
sadly, tragically, Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them. You know, there should be a very clear evidence that we're the Lord's in our lives. We should be able to look at another person and say, I can see that person is saved. It's evident in the way they live. It's evident in the way they talk. It's evident in the, their, their love of Christ, that they are the Lord's. That, that, that must be there. John says, uh, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. There's got to be that marked, distinct change when we become a Christian. And unquestionably, there has been a change in Jacob or in Israel as God has now renamed him, but there's still something of the old Jacob there, isn't there? It's interesting, isn't it? It's back in 32:28 that uh, God changes his name. With these words, no longer will your name be Jacob, which means deceiver, but Israel. Back there, chapter 32, verse 28. And here we are in chapter 33 and we find him being called Jacob again. And and in fact, James Montgomery Boyce points out he's counted them up and after his name's been changed, he's twice as often still called Jacob as he is Israel. 45 times he's called Jacob after that point, only 23 times Israel. So what's going on here? Who is it who's calling him Jacob still? Is it his brother? No. It's not his brother in this chapter that calls him Israel, that calls him Jacob. It's the narrator. It's the one who's speaking under God's direction. It's the one who's recording this by the direction of the Holy Spirit who chooses to still call him Jacob. Now why is he calling him Jacob so often? Because the reality is he's still so often living as Jacob, isn't he? He's still the deceiver. When Abraham has his name changed to Abraham, he's never again called Abraham. It's a change, it's a transfer, it's done once and, and that's it. But with Jacob, God says, you're now Israel. You're not the deceiver anymore, I've changed you. And yet it still keeps coming up again. Time and time and time again. And we get it here, don't we? Look at verse 13. What did we read, Steve, read to us there? Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and the cows and the nurse and their young. If they're driven hard, just one day all the animals would die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and other children until I come to my Lord in Seir. And he sort of says, well, let me at least leave some men with you, presumably to guard and help. You're saying this is a difficult journey and you've got children that are going to have to be carried, animals are going to be... I'll leave some men to... No, 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 you don't need to do that. No, no, you go on, I'll, I'll come behind you, I'll follow you on. Why is Jacob so insistent that Esau should go on ahead of him? Because he's no intention of going to see her. No intention at all. And I think he was right not to go to Seir. After all, God, when he appeared to him, said, go back to the land of your forefathers. And when he related to his wives what God had said to him, he recalls God as saying, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And I think Jacob was absolutely right to recognise that God wants him to go somewhere different. So why on earth couldn't he turn around to Esau and say, Esau, thank you so much for that wonderful invitation. Thank you so much for saying we can come and live with you. Thank you so much for opening up your home to us. But God has called me to do something different. 
I, I, I need to go where God wants me to go but we're going to remain brothers and we're going to remain friends. Why couldn't he have said that? And the only answer I can give is this. By nature he's a deceiver. No good reason at all is there? You can't suggest one viable reason why he didn't say that to Esau. Esau now loves him. It's all resolved between them. Esau wants to be on good terms with him. Why couldn't he have just told him that? Because there's just this twist in his character. He by nature deceives. And soon as he doesn't get on top of it, it's there again coming to the surface and before he knows what he's doing, he's speaking deceit. My friend, have you ever stopped to identify which of the sins that come naturally to you? Because I do believe it's different for all of us. Maybe there are some sins that are common to all men, but we all have particular weaknesses, don't we? Can I ask you if you've ever stopped to try and identify which are your ones? Which are the things that repeatedly, consistently keep trying to come back to the surface again in your life that if you just relax for a moment are are there taking over and shaping your life again? I think that's a very necessary and right thing to do. To just examine your heart and your life before the Lord and say, look, where are the areas where if I'm completely honest... Satan is constantly tempting me and I I repeatedly find myself myself tripping up. You know, Wayne Grudem talked on Wednesday night, didn't he, about in his book, noting down there the the areas where he has difficulty to remind himself to to pray about them and to seek God's forgiveness for them. I, I think that's a healthy thing to do. You know, maybe for you, deceiving people isn't one of them. Maybe you're someone who's who's very able to just tell people exactly what you think and you always call a spade a spade. You don't ever practice deceit. You tell it as it is. Maybe it's something else for you. But we need to be able to identify those things in order that we can ask God's strength to battle them, in order that we can confess them to the Lord when they catch us and that we can be on our guard against them. So that when we find ourselves in a situation and we just know that that's, this is an area where I know I'm liable to temptation, I watch out... And with God's help we can resist and we can avoid that sin. And secondly, having done that, how well are you doing at conquering those sins? My friend, if you're a Christian, you've had a name change. You are now Christian. You're now one of Christ's ones. I trust you are not only submitted your life to God at the cross but continuing day by day in a pursuit of holiness. That's our calling, isn't it? To be holy as God is holy. Are you winning in that battle? Or do you find so often that those sins just overtake you again? Are you Israel or are you Jacob in other words? And finally, see Israel a worshipping man. Is there anything good we can say for Jacob in this chapter? Let's be honest, his life hasn't shone so far, has it? It's amazing, isn't it? One of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it's so hard to find anything good to say for Jacob, isn't it? Is there anything we can say here? Yes, there is, because the Lord has his hand on him. And the Lord has changed the heart within him, albeit that sin is so close to the surface so often he's lied to his brother he's 
now settled in the wrong place. Shechem, Sokoth isn't the place he's meant to be. Do you see the, the extent of his deceit to, and his attitude here? It's quite interesting. He's actually turned round and gone back the way he came. He's recrossed the river Jabbok. He's sort of gone northwest to settle in this other place. And it's still not where God intends that he should end up. But he has done one thing there that is significant, hasn't it? Hasn't he? Verse 18. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Up until now he's called God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And what does he call him now? God, the God of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? His vow, albeit a very flawed vow at the time, is starting to come true, isn't it? Back there in Genesis 28, verse 20, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And God has done that and exceedingly more for him, hasn't he? God has just blessed him abundantly. And he's brought that man with all his stubbornness and all his rebellion and all his sinful nature to the point where Israel now says, God, you are my God. I dedicate this altar to the God. He doesn't mean the nation Israel. That hasn't come into being yet. He doesn't mean the land Israel. He means me. I build this altar to my God. Oh, my friend. Do you know the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Do you know him? My friend, can you call him my God? Do you know what it is to be able to call him yours? I pray you do. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord, there is none like you.